It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it, uh, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the other who abstains, abstains in honor, to, in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Excuse me, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For when we all stand before, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word today. We ask that we would delight ourselves in your your word and the scriptures that you have for us. Give me the words to say as we walk through this. And we ask most of all that the Holy Spirit would be here that he would be living and active in our midst and that he would use the ministry of the word of God uh, to teach us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, uh, to give us all the instructions that we might have to draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes as a parent, uh, when you are correcting one of your children, uh, another child will come in and figure, well, since you're correcting them, this is their opportunity to make sure that you know more of the stuff that the child has done. And so maybe it's, it's mom and dad, and they're correcting the child, child A, and child B comes in and figures, well, if mom and dad are doing it, I can do a part of it too. And, and we've had experiences where, where we look at child B and we say to them, you worry about you. You worry about yourself. Don't be piling on your brother. Don't be piling on your sister. In in our case, it's all all sisters, obviously, because all we have is girls. But we say, you worry about you. And in this way, it is true also of the Christian life when it comes to matters of personal conscience. You worry about you. The key verse in this passage, or one of the key verses, is verse 4. You, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So here is that idea that if they are the servant of the Lord, just like if that child is the child of the parent, if you're another servant of the Lord, or if you're another child of the family, you don't get to pile on to that first child or that first servant in this case. You worry about you. 
And so our main point this morning is this. Do not stand in judgment over other believers. Now, just as an aside, there are times and places where we must exercise discernment. There certainly are times or places where we exercise judgment. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolater uh, or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with what such as one of these. It is not those in, is it not those inside the church who we are to judge? There are times where in a church setting, in the family of God, when someone claims to be a brother and they are living in sin, you have to deal with it. This is not the scenario that Paul is talking about, and this is not the scenario that most of us encounter in our Christian lives when it comes to judging other Christians. Paul's talking here about being judgmental, if we can put it that way in the English language. Paul's talking about you know, on matters of personal conviction and conscience. This passage is talking about a very unique set of scenarios where one believer is critical of another believer over issues of personal conviction and conscience. In other words, nobody's breaking any laws or rules of, or, or commands of Scripture here. The judgment is all over personal tastes and preferences and, and ways that people are living and behaving that have nothing to do with sin and unrighteousness. And isn't it true that in our day and age, that's where most people get judgmental. It's not over things that are really sin. Although we say, oh, wow, you know, how could they do that? That's so sinful. That's not very godly. I thought a Christian would act better. But most of the time, we make things that the Bible doesn't say are sins. And because we have a personal conviction about them, we elevate it up to the level of if you do this or don't do that, you are sinning. The language, the idea there that, that some have used before is that we bind people's conscience. We make it a, an unbreakable law of God where God hasn't bound someone's conscience. In other words, there are things in Scripture that do say, do this and don't do that, and this is how you live. But when we put our will upon the Word of God and upon the lives of others, and we say, don't do this and don't do that, without the Scriptures, we are binding their conscience, not God. So on matters of personal conviction and personal conscience, do not stand in judgment over other believers. So first this morning... Do not pass judgment over Christians who diff with different personal convictions. So, Paul's telling us here, do not quarrel with those who are more conservative with their freedom in Christ. Look at verse 1. And as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So what is Paul talking about here when he talks about someone who is weak in the faith? He's not talking about someone who is struggling with their salvation. He's certainly not talking about someone who isn't saved. He's, he's not talking about someone struggling to believe God. He's, he's talking about someone who has genuine faith in Christ, 
but they haven't embraced all of the liberty that they have in Christ. And most likely, the most common set of scenarios that Paul would have been dealing with in the Roman church is there would have been people that grew up Jewish and there would have been people that grew up Gentile and they both became Christians. And the Jewish believer who became a believer that Jesus was the Messiah still would have had all of those things with him in how he was raised to keep all the elements, all the ceremonial elements of the Old Testament law. And so they would have said, of course Christ has saved me, but they were weak in the faith in that they still felt a need and a personal conviction to to honor their Jewish heritage through the keeping of the ceremonies. And perhaps even ceremonies that went above and beyond what Scripture had even commanded in the Old Testament. We were actually talking about this this morning in the book, uh, in, in Sunday school, in the book of Acts, looking at the story of Peter and Cornelius and the circumcision party and how they put extra commands on, on the believers and didn't believe right away that Gentiles got saved. And so even Peter had to learn, as God showed him with the sheep that came down out of heaven, that yes, these animals now are clean. God has declared them clean. You can eat them. And yet there still would have been believers in the early churches and in Rome and other places who for matters of personal conscience and conviction said, you know what? I I just am not comfortable. I, I just can't bring myself to do it. And they're saved and they're good Christians, but they're weak in their faith in that limited sense. They're not inferior Christians. They just haven't, they just continue to struggle with this example of food. So that is our first example, actually, that Paul goes to. Look at verse 2 and 3. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So, uh, there is nothing in Scripture that says you can't eat, that you have to eat only vegetables. So, so here, even they've gone above and beyond the Mosaic Law. You think of the book of Daniel and you remember how when Daniel was in that pagan context, uh, he wouldn't eat at the king's table because most likely from what we know that the meat would have been sacrificed to idols. And so eating it even after the fact would have been seen as partaking of it. And so Daniel and his three friends, they eat only vegetables. And then today you have people that go, well, hey, do the Daniel diet. It's more healthy. Well, there's nothing in Scripture that mandates that. But here Paul is saying there are some people that perhaps for various reasons they're eating only vegetables. Perhaps they're worried about the meat market. In Roman cities, oftentimes the cheapest meat was meat that was already sacrificed to idols. And so perhaps their conscience feels a bit of that. Hey, this this meat was before an idol, even though now it's being sold. Perhaps depending on who your butcher was, he was Gentile or the meat would have been cut and associated around things that weren't kosher. And so if you grew up Jewish, you'd be like, you know, I'm going to avoid this. And to avoid this, I'm going to eat only vegetables. And so what is Paul's instruction for someone who is now in Christ? And and technically, they don't have to have a hang up over meat. If that's your conscience, that's fine. Then he says this, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. 
Let not the person that's enjoying good, healthy meat despised in this context, the one who's saying, you know, I can't eat meat because I'm just worried about the idol association and I'm worried about anything unclean. And, and yeah, God has made all these things clean, but their personal conscience is still struggling. And Paul's saying, if, if you're the one that's not struggling, don't despise them. Don't think you're superior to them. Don't look down your nose at them and, well, gee, they were a really mature Christian. They'd know we could do all this in Christ. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue them into eating meat. Every time they see them eating their vegetables, I'm going to argue that they should eat a good steak. Likewise, Paul says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So the one eating vegetables shouldn't sit there and say, well, do they know where that meat came from? You know that that meat was touched by a man who doesn't worship God. That butcher worships in in the idol temple and then he comes to his job with his meat and he's touched that and it's some sort of like chain of of uncleanliness. And and I am so serious about avoiding any tainting of sin or association with idolatry. I don't even eat meat. Therefore, I am better than all of you that don't eat meat. Sadly, it does kind of sound like some uh, vegetarians and vegans today. We're superior because we don't eat meat. And think of how we're caring for God's creation and taking care of all of life. And, and Paul's point is constantly this. Don't be smug and don't be more. Don't think I'm more holy than other people. I once had an acquaintance who did go vegetarian. Great for him. And he put on his Facebook status about how he was going vegetarian in appreciation or in anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth. You know, where the lion sits down with the lamb and and everything's all beautiful and wonderful and and I'm not mocking the new heavens and the earth, but but his point was like, in in anticipation for this, we're not going to eat anything anymore in my family that's been killed. And, And I don't know how he meant it, but the Facebook post, as many of them often do, it came across as kind of smug. Like you think you're you're more anticipating the new heavens and the new earth because you're not eating meat. And the snarky side of me wanted to say, well, if we're not going to have meat in the new heavens and the new earth, then I'm definitely going to get all the steak I can here and now. The point is this. Do not judge. Don't think you're superior. And this is just on the issue of food. There are so many other issues. But notice here it says, for God has welcomed him. This, this language here, I, I think, is, is subtly like hospitality language. Like when you welcome someone in and you, you sit down with them and you have table fellowship with them. So in, in Acts 27.35, uh, when Paul is on the ship that's going to be shipwrecked in the middle of the storm, it says he took bread and he gave thanks in the presence of all and he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged. And it says they ate some food themselves. Literally, it says they welcomed some food. And then in Acts 28.2, where they're crashed up on the island of Malta, it says of the people, the locals who were there, it says the native people showed unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and they welcomed us. They gave them blankets. They gave them food. They gave them fire. They got them dried off. They probably gave them fresh water. This language of welcoming, I think, is, is more than just God is in the family or they, they're into the family of God. It's this idea that, like, 
almost a metaphor. Like if God welcomes them, if God could have table fellowship with them, if God could bring them in, who are you to look down on other people and not eat with them and not associate with them and, and judge them because somebody's eating only vegetables or somebody's eating meat in their diet or whatever it might be. If I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if God has welcomed them, who am I to, to draw this division of barrier and say, well, I'm the better Christian because I do this or I don't do this. Again, this is matters of personal conscience. And you'll see the second example that Paul gives is worship and holy days. So verse 5 and 6. One person esteems one better as better than another, speaking of the days. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, for the one who observes the day observes it to the honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. So again, there would have been people with their Jewish upbringing who would have held to the Sabbath and they would have held to all of the feast days of the Old Testament and they, they're thinking like, hey, you know, I'm in Jesus and Jesus was promised in the Old Testament and, and I grew up honoring these days to honor the Lord. So of course I'm going to honor Jesus with all of these days. And Paul says, great. That's wonderful. You're doing these things for the Lord. And then the other person comes along and, and perhaps they were the Gentile person and they would say, look, I'm, I'm free in Christ. I, can, I, can, I don't have to do the holy days. I can worship whatever day. Every day is made by God. So I'm just going to worship God every day in my personal life. And Paul says, great. If you're worshiping God and they're worshiping God and they're doing it on certain days and honoring certain days is special and you're honoring every day is special, you're both honoring God. So why are you judging? In Galatians, we see that the Galatian church fell back into this probably as part of their heresy. He says in Galatians 4.10, you observe days and months and season and years. In Colossians, Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon or a Sabbath. So Paul is saying, in effect, whatever side of the debate you end up on, Love the other person and do it for the Lord. Both are serving the Lord. Leave each other alone on matters of personal conscience and rejoice that they are doing it for the glory of God. And that's how we need to think of it. Let me give you three contemporary examples so it's easy to talk about these things in terms of Old Testament law because none of us probably here today are, are really all that into keeping the ceremonial law. We do watch on Fellowship Sundays who takes bacon and the crab dip and all of those. So, no, I'm just kidding. Um, first example, Sundays. How strict should we be on a Sunday that it's the Lord's day? 
Some of us grew up where you don't do anything on a Sunday except go to church. Like, you don't do anything on a Sunday. And so some people have strong convictions about Sunday, treating it like the Sabbath, honoring God and and not working. So no housework, no mowing the yard, no gardening. Don't you dare throw any laundry in in the laundry. Uh, Some people's convictions are so strong, and I'm not mocking them. I'm just laying it out. Some people feel like, you know, I really shouldn't go out to eat at a restaurant on a Sunday because me going out to eat means that someone else had to show up for work that day. So they couldn't go to worship or they had to cut out of worship early or they had to work Saturday afternoon or or excuse me, Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. Uh, Some occasionally you run into some that will even say, you know, I don't even feel comfortable watching football on Sunday because you think about all the people that had to show up for work that morning to open the stadium, to play the game, the coaches, the, the all of that. And some people have a really strict conscience. And and we come out of a culture that in the past had blue laws, right? Where you couldn't work on on Sundays. And so some of us still have some of that remnant in us where we think that way. Others are like, you know, Sunday is a great day and I love being outside on a Sunday. And I I relax in God's creation. I mow my yard a little bit. I, I garden some because I'm just enjoying what God has given me. You know, it's not like you're skipping church. You're just saying, look, I, I do some other things in the afternoon. Guess what? That's okay, too. If your conscience gives you the liberty and the freedom to do that, as long as you're not breaking commands of God, go and do it. If your conscience feels like, you know, I, I just want to keep that day as special. I'm so busy with the rest of my life and I, I never take any time off. And if, if I just let all of my work be done on a, on a Sunday, you know, it, it just robs me of, of some quiet time. Great. Do that in honor for the Lord. But let's not fight with one another over who's the more mature Christian, who's the more spiritual one, who's honoring the day of the Lord. Because as Paul has said, all days are equal. If you're coming to worship, if you're worshiping God with the family of God, go home and do or don't do whatever you like on a Sunday afternoon as long as it's not real sins. Second, alcohol. This will be a fun one. The Bible teaches us not to get drunk and not to be addicted to wine. If you're an alcoholic or you've struggled with alcoholism, I I would say you need to abstain because that sin is going to continue to, to plague you if you're around it. That's just some practical wisdom because clearly the Bible prohibits being addicted to wine. I would even say, you know, if you feel you have to have a drink at the end of every day to unwind, go back and look at your heart and ask yourself some tough questions of why. But I would say this, don't make a rule where Scripture doesn't make a rule. Most of us that grew up on the East Coast, particularly in Bible fellowship churches, in Mennonite brethren churches, in in just our conservative this side of the country, were told growing up, don't touch any wine or beer. That's what sinners do. I I remember a a very real scenario. My mom one time had some some minor uh, stomach digestive issues. And my dad got a bottle of wine for her and put it in the fridge so she could drink it and help with the digestion. 
you know, she'd just have one little glass at dinner. Almost like Paul says to Timothy, take a little wine with your dinner. And I remember my dad telling me, because I was probably like 10 or 12 and aware of these things, and he said to me, don't tell anyone at church that there's a bottle of wine in the fridge. And, and some of you grow up and you grew up with none of this, and you're like, look, uh, a little bit of, of healthy wine? That, what, that's fine. How can you have a good Italian meal without it? We knew some people that had grown up Italian, and they, this was not a hang-up at all. Uh, I know some people that have been in Germany. I, I know one or two people that grew up over in Germany, that live there, that are from there. And it's not the cultural hang-up at all. They despise drunkenness. But having a beer with dinner is, is just part of normal life. If your conscience today says to you, I just, I just can't drink. I've seen what it's done. Maybe you know people around you that are alcoholics and you want to live a good example. Maybe, maybe you just grew up in a very strict household and you just feel like that would be casting dispersion on, on your past or something like that. If your conscience really burdens you, don't do it. And don't feel any pressure from anyone else when they, if they offer you a drink. Don't feel anyone saying down your neck, well, you have freedom in Christ. You need to have alcohol. No. Some of us, even some of us that grew up in a setting where we were told not to drink, have come and said, we are free now in Christ. I'm going to have an occasional glass of wine or a cocktail or, or maybe a nice beer or whatever. Not getting drunk, not getting buzzed. Just, just I'm going to enjoy the fruit, that, the stuff that God has given us. What I would say is this. Don't use your freedom as an abuse. Don't think that you're more spiritual in your freedom. Well, I understand that I'm free in Christ and uh, these poor people that still struggle with alcohol over here. Rejoice that they are honoring God by abstaining. In the same way, don't just throw in a little wine at dinner just to kind of like stick it to the way that you grew up, just to kind of be a little bit wild and rebellious. If you're going to do it, give thanks to God. Hey, God, you made grapes and grapes ferment. Praise God. Jesus changed water into wine. Amen. Let's clink the glasses. But don't think it makes you more superior. And also don't do it in such a way, and Paul will get into this next week, don't use your freedom in such a way that's going to intentionally cause other people to stumble. You know, don't show it off. Be careful who you even, I would say, be even share with that you have uh, freedom to do these things. One last analogy, one last application. And ironically, you do see this coming, becoming more and more common in our day and age. How do we use the Old Testament days and feasts and celebrations? We actually talked about this in Sunday school. Uh, it gave me a good, like, preview. It was the teaser trailer for, for the sermon. But, but sometimes you run into people that in their zeal to say, we need to know more of the Old Testament. And, and I applaud knowing more of the Old Testament. We, we do live in a day and age where Christians, by and large, we just read the New Testament and we don't think about all of those formative things that are in the, New Test in the Old Testament. Excuse me. But the Old Testament lays the foundation 
for all that comes along in the New Testament. And so we need to read it. We need to understand it. But some in their zeal for the Old Testament, a good zeal, have gone and said, and you see it now cropping up in some evangelical circles, have basically said, well, the Old Testament has God's calendar. It has God's ordering of time. And so we should take more seriously the Old Testament feasts and we should do more uh, to celebrate them and make sure that you do them. And in fact, I knew one fellow that wouldn't even celebrate Christmas because it wasn't in the Old Testament calendar. And also he had this idea that it was all pagan origins. So he got really offended one time when he showed up in one of our churches and he saw a Christmas tree there. And he saw us celebrating the birth of Jesus. Uh, this is the kind of heresy that the Galatians almost fell back into, or almost the kind that they fell back into, that, that they were so exalting the Old Testament that they said, well, we better get circumcised, we better keep all the food laws, and we better keep all the holy days in the Old Testament. Now, honor the Old Testament But just like the food laws were removed, Peter being shown, Jesus declaring all foods clean, all of those things, the ceremonies have come to fulfillment. We should know why they're there. We should study them. But you're not less of a Christian or more of a Christian, depending on whether or not you put them in your calendar and you celebrate them. I have a good friend who, he loves the story of Esther. And the story of Esther, at the end, they have the Feast of Purim. And he and his family, a number of years back, started this fun little family tradition where every year they celebrate Purim. Like, like who even knows what Purim is, right? And they just do this privately in their own home. They get gifts for the kids. They explain the story. They read the story of Esther. And they have a fun time at it. They don't think they're more spiritual because they do it. They're just doing it as, as sort of their own little family tradition. And in a sense, that's exactly how it should be. If you want to do a little bit of that, that's fine. Don't think it makes you more spiritual. Don't think that, it, that it's a necessary spiritual discipline in your Christian life. Don't look down at other Christians that don't. At the same time, if you look at these things and you say, like, look, I'm, I'm free in Christ. I'm going to celebrate Christmas. I'm going to celebrate Easter. But, but I don't have to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Boosts and, and, and the Pentecost. And I'm not going to make little huts to go into and, and put them up inside my house with palm branches for the Feast of Tabernacles and such. You're free. Let's not judge one another. And this is the principle. Don't bind someone else's conscience where Scripture doesn't bind someone conscience. Sometimes what we do in our lives, and we do this even in our personal lives, we see a rule or a command or a principle that Scripture gives. For example, the principle that we should worship God. The principle that we should gather together with God's people to worship. And then to be extra certain that we follow God and we enjoy God in the ways that He intended, we make a rule out in front. And we say, well, because I don't want to break what God wants me to do, I'll make sure that there's a rule in front of that. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if, you, if you say, don't go on the road to your kids. That's the rule. Don't go on the road. And then let's say your kids erect a fence 
30 feet in front of the road and say, now I won't go on the road. And then one of your kids who put this fence up starts yelling at the other kid who's crossed over the fence, is playing in that section of the grass, but still isn't on the road. How dare you cross the fence? Mom and dad didn't want that. No, mom and dad didn't want you on the road. You put the fence there for the sake of your conscience. Do you understand that? Do you see how we do that often in our own lives? Sometimes it's not bad. For example, as I've said already, there are people that should, as a personal rule, abstain from alcohol. And they should keep that because of all kinds of various circumstances. At the same time, that's not binding on everyone else. If someone doesn't struggle with having a little glass of wine here or there, they don't need to honor that fence that was put out in front of the do not go on the road line. Second, this morning, do not pass judgment over other Christians because they belong to the Lord. And here's the thing. When you're the one judging other Christians, you're taking up a position that belongs to God. God is our judge. And we spend so much time judging others and worrying about how other people are living our lives and, and policing them and, and, and gossiping maybe. I can't believe that they do this. Can you believe so-and-so ordered a glass of wine out at the restaurant? I thought they were a good Christian. That is God's job. Do not pass judgment over other Christians because they belong to the Lord. So a believer is the Lord's servant, not yours. Verse 4, I'm backing up here a little bit now. You who are to pass, who are you, excuse me, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld. The Lord is able to make him stand. So in the ancient world, obviously, you have masters and servants and you are accountable to your master. You are not accountable to someone else's master, let alone being accountable to another servant of the master. If you're both in the same, uh, not in some sort of chain of command, but you're both directly uh, responsible to the master, you're not really responsible to each other in that sense. In the same way, in my earlier illustration, with the children of the parents. One child doesn't get to heap up and judge the other child because both are accountable to the parents. And this is the problem with being judgmental. You think that people are accountable to you and you put yourself in the place of God. You become kind of the mediator that I'm going to determine whether they're walking with the Lord. When Paul says here, they'll be upheld for the Lord is able to make them stand. We live all of our lives then belonging to the Lord. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Or elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, you are bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Again in 1 Corinthians 7, you are bought with a price, do not become bondservants to men. Live all of your life under the authority of the Lord. Your life is not your own. So, so look, if you are drinking 
some beer and some alcohol and you're not getting drunk, but you're doing it because you're saying, look, it's my life. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. You're not honoring God. Whether you eat or drink, you need to do all to the glory of God. Whether you are living and how you are living, you are living for the Lord. And if you are dying, you are dying for the Lord. Everything about you as the believer is to be bringing glory to God in one way or another. So it's not really about what kind of rules am I having, extra things putting on here. It's really about am I glorifying God. Look, if you want to make your Sundays really a strict Sabbath and glorify God, if you want to go home and say, like, we're not going to turn on the lights, we're going to light some candles, uh, we're, we're not going to do too much cooking because that's work, and we're just going to sing some songs as a family, we're going to spend some time in the Word of God, amen. Honor the Lord in that way. If you want to go home and you want to crash on the couch, you want to watch some football, and you want to rejoice that God made sports or made men who have made sports, amen. Go and honor God with all of your life. But remember, each one of us will bring an account before God. Look at verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Here's the other problem with being judgmental and quarreling with our brothers and sisters. We're not living for the Lord. We're not remembering that we ourselves belong to the Lord. You think of you as a parent, for those of us that have kids. You have to make decisions on how you're going to raise your kids. What are the rules going to be? What is the curfew going to be? When are your children going to be allowed to date? Are they going to be allowed to date? You know, at 30, that's a good age. God gives us principles. God doesn't give us the number, the age, the exact rule. And so you as a parent have to determine how are we as a family going to live for the Lord? What are our principles going to be? Maybe some of you, with your children or even with yourself, you're okay saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to a, a, a PG-13 movie. I'm going to go to a certain R movie. It's maybe a war movie and has history or whatever. And others of you say, look, I'm, I'm not going to let my kids go to a PG-13. I'm not even going to let them go to a rated R until they're out on their own. That's your conviction. Or the other side is your conviction. Honor the Lord with it. And it's ironic that I think it's parents sometimes that get most judgy with how other people are parenting their kids. We need to watch how we're walking before the Lord. And it doesn't matter if you're a parent. It doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if your kids are out of the house or you have grandkids or whatever. The issue is watch your own life as you walk before the Lord. So often it's easy when we start to get judgmental we justify ourselves by who we are better than. We rank ourselves with other Christians. Well, I'm doing okay in my spiritual life because, you know, I'm not doing like they're doing. 
And, and that judgmentalism, it gives me a sense of self-confidence, of self-righteousness. And I stop worrying and examining who I am before a holy God. I stop worrying about what God's actual laws are. Because I've made up these bunch of extra rules that, that tell me I'm okay. We need to live before the Lord. And keep in mind here, and this is where Paul goes with this, that Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. Look at verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both, uh, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Look, if you're judgmental, you are not the Lord of the living and the dead. Stop trying to be Jesus. Stop trying to be someone else's conscience. Now look, I'm not talking about when we have to to help a brother that's struggling with genuine sins. Paul is talking about when you're judgmental. Notice here as well, we are reminded that I will not escape my sins in the day of judgment. That the only way to stand in the day of judgment is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. You cannot hide from your sin. And, and the psalmist says, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. We get so worried about being judgmental with other people and we never ask ourselves, am I going to be able to stand in the day of judgment? Do I know the Lord Jesus Christ? Has His blood covered my sins? Do I have His righteousness clothing me so that in Him I can stand. Remember earlier in the passage when it is said, for the Lord is able to make Him stand. The Lord is our judge. And we think we're helping other people when we're being judgmental over them because we're trying to make them ready for the Lord when we ourselves aren't even ready for the Lord. God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world. And He gave proof to us of that when He raised Jesus from the dead and crowned Him the King and set all things under His feet so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I am accountable to my Lord. And if I don't profess Him as Lord, I'm going to come before Him on the day of judgment and I will bow before Him, not because I want to, but because His majesty and glory will be overwhelming. He will make me bend my knee. Are you in Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? That the life that you live, you live for Him because you know He's your Savior. You've believed in Him. And when you die, the death that you die will be in Him and for Him because He calls you home. Paul here has quoted from Isaiah 45, 23. He says, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. Then he says in verse 12, So then, 
Each of us will give an account of himself to God. When you go before the Lord on the day of judgment, if you're an unbeliever, you will give an account for all of your sins. And your sins will be exposed. And as I already said, the scriptures say you will not stand in the day of judgment. It means you will be cut down and judged as guilty. That accounting will not be fun. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, on the day of judgment, you will be saved. You will be saved because Christ is your Savior. Because Christ will stand next to you at the same time He is standing as your judge. And He will say, I have died for this child. I have covered them with my blood and with my righteousness. But you and I as believers will still give an account for the way we lived our lives as believers. We're not going to be in danger of losing our salvation. Christ isn't going to cut us out or kick us out of heaven. We'll be safe and secure. But it won't be fun when we have to give an account for the way we may have treated other believers for the attitudes that we might have had, the sins that we clung to. They'll be forgiven. But it won't be fun. If you've ever had a good and godly parent, you know this by way of analogy. That a good and godly parent, when you go to them and you, you tell them you did something wrong and they forgive you and they love you, but sometimes, what hurts more when your parent is godly is not the sin that you did, but the fact that, in a sense, you let them down. They forgive you, they love you, and they have that moment where they like, you know, I really expected better from you. Now, God is even more gracious and God is, is not going to, to heap guilt upon us or psychologically manipulate us. But it will still be a sobering thing to stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, having had the Holy Spirit, and still have to say to God, you know, you're right, God. I did blow it. I was rude. I was mean. I did judge other Christians. We'll be forgiven and we'll get into heaven. But I imagine that in that moment, as with all sin, we'll have a regret. Because my life was Christ's that whole time. And I didn't avail myself to all that Jesus had given me. And love my brother. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today and we are reminded that you have made your Son the King. That you have made him the Lord of all things. That he who was the eternal Son of God came dwell down and, and dwelt among us, died and rose again, and was exalted up into the right hand of the Father to be our King, to be our Lord, to be our Savior. And so, Lord, as we celebrate communion now, remind us 
of what Jesus has done. And that we need to partake of Jesus through saving faith. In your name we pray. Amen.